Welcome to Junkyard Theory, folks. Today's episode is uh, hosted via TSML. Uh, whenever we host something via TSML, there's always something special for the Sri Lankans. It's either a Sri Lankan-born actor, Sri Lankan-born composer working out there in Hollywood. But today, uh, we got somebody who's not Sri Lankan, but his character is beloved by so many of us who grew up uh, in the 80s and 90s watching this one little show called Robin of Sherwood. And there used to be this guy dressed in black, very silent but deadly, the Arabian uh, the Saracen character called Nasir. And Mark Ryan, we've got uh, the actor who plays Nasir <laughs> in the house. Mark, thank you so much for joining. Are you uh, one good, sir? Are you bow one? Are you bow one? <laughs> you got it. You got there you it. go. <laughs> Hello, so how are you doing? <laughs> good man, good. So good to so good to see you. So good to finally connect over uh, on, online, essentially. Uh, Mark, uh, man, uh, we've seen you play this badass character uh, for like the past thirty odd years, but this is probably the first time you're talking to uh, a Sri Lankan audience. And uh, I want to start from the very beginning. Talk to me about your origin story. Where'd you come from? How would you Mark. become Mark Ryan? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was born in a place called Doncaster in Yorkshire. And um, I grew up as a boy playing in Sherwood Forest. It's now called Clumber Park. It's a park, not really a forest. But I you grew, grew up, up playing in Sherwood. Sherwood Forest. And, oh, and playing Robin Hood inside what's called the Major Oak, which is a, uh, a thousand-year-old oak tree there, which is hollow. And as a kid, you used to be able to climb into the tree and be in the tree. And the legend was that it was Robin Hood's hiding place. So you could get in the tree and, and, and literally hide in the play Robin Hood and be in the tree, hide in the tree. And um, my entire family, in fact, my mother and my grandmother, there's photographs of my mum and her mum uh, standing by the tree. It was a place that you people went in and visited. Now you're not allowed in because somebody has set fire to it. So you're not allowed to do that anymore. Cool. But... Um, uh, yeah, it, 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 I grew up with that. So Robin Hood's Bay in Scarborough, Robin Hood's Cave in Yorkshire, I, all of those places I visited as a as a kid. So I grew up with the legend in the middle of the whole thing of the Knights Templars. There was nine Knight Templar preceptories around the city of York. There was a whole history of the Normans and the Norman castles uh, and... Um, uh, all of that history in, in Yorkshire. So it was um, sort of seeped into my psyche uh, uh, as a child. And um, I started out in the music business, working in working men's clubs as a singer, as a musician and a singer, and um, moved on to doing bits of television, the Granada television and, and Yorkshire TV, and then went to London. Um, was very lucky to get a show uh, uh, first show I did was a show called Dean about the life of James Dean. And then the next show was a show called Evita, which of course changed my uh, life and career. Oh. Magaldi for two years. And then. This was uh, in West End, yeah? In the West End, yeah. Yeah, okay. the Prince Theatre. And then played Che Guevara for two years. And so I was the only, I think I'm still the only actor that Harold Prince, late great Harold Prince, director, Broadway uh, director, producer. Uh, allowed to move from one character in the same show to being another character in the same show. So I went from Magali, and Magali was one week, and then the next week I was Che Guevara. And um, Che was just 
probably one of the best parts I'm ever going to get in a stage show musical because um, he's the narrator he's talking to the audience and he's guiding the audience through the history of the show and it was there that um, a friend of mine Lewis Collins who did a show called The Professionals brought uh, Ian Sharp to see the show and Ian Sharp was the director who directed Udez Wins uh, in America it's known as The Final Option and I had obviously I had curly dark hair then you know what i mean i had hair i know it sounds weird but I hope <laughs> you see it. um and uh uh so that was no wig that was no wig that was that no was wig. my hair i had curly dark hair <laughs> and uh and a, and a beard dark beard and um he cast me in a film called who dares wins uh in the uk and then when he started looking around to put the robin and sherwood cast together he, he approached me and said would you like to play a character in this TV show and I'd, and I'd seen the script and I was actually a little bit I wasn't I was skeptical because I grew up with Robin Hood with Richard Green you know and obviously mm -hmm. Robin Hood had been done uh, several times so I was a little bit skeptical about about doing Robin Hood again and when I read the script I went well this is not at all what I thought it was going to be this had the element of magic in it it had that element these layers in it which were very complex and and uh, and knotty and dark and the characters the merry men themselves were different you know they weren't they weren't your standard sort of characters yeah. so um uh, I, I said yes of course and the character I was offered was a character called Edmund the Archer so originally I was going to be Edmund the Archer and on the first day of shooting, while I was actually practicing the two-handed sword fight uh, with, with Michael, um, with actually with Teddy Walsh, who stood by the prop stool, Ian came up to me and he said, you're no longer Edmund the Archer, you're now Nazir the Saracen. He said, oh, can you do a sword fight with two swords? I said, sure. He said, how long, I said, how long have I got? He said, about 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, no, you've got, you've got a couple of weeks to practice. So I said, okay. And so that's how it, um, Nazir was born on the set. He wasn't called, um, Ed, he wasn't, that was called Edmund, originally became Nazir the Saracen. And then um, Richard Carpenter, who became almost like a father figure mentor to me. Kip was, Richard Kip Carpenter was one of the nicest, smartest, most intelligent writers I've ever worked with. And he, this would not happen today. He called me up. And he said, Mark, we've got you in the show. We're going, we're going to write you into the show as a merry man. He said, I, I've written the first three episodes. He said, well, there's no dialogue for you. There's nothing, you know, I, I've already written them. There's no stuff. What do you want to do? And I said, um, Kip, I don't, I don't need the dialogue. Give me the action. Give me the sword fights, the knife throwing, the tracking, the, you know, the horse riding. Give me that kind of stuff. You know, give me the action stuff because it's a visual medium. So I don't need loads of dialogue don't, don't need that give me the action and i will speak through the action and he said have you done any research for this and i said actually i've just finished reading sir stephen runciman's history of the crusades there's three volumes and i've read all three volumes of, of the history of the crusades and i said there's a weird relationship between the knights templar and the cult of the assassins sometimes mm -hmm. they work together sometimes they were at war with each other but they exchanged a lot of medical, philosophical, uh, even navigational uh, knowledge. They traded things like the astrolabe for seafaring and that kind of stuff. So and these I, are the guys who came from the Middle East, essentially. Correct. 
And, and during the Crusades, and I found this out later on, I didn't know this at the time, particularly in Yorkshire, when uh, the Crusaders returned from um, the, mm. the, the Middle East, they often brought back servants and guardians and, and their retinue, basically their, their family, you know, servants and stuff like that. They brought them back with them. And uh, there were, in fact, whole villages in Yorkshire that were made of what, what they, they look because they looked like sort of Roman Egyptians. Everybody thought they were just traveling gypsies. Obviously, they spoke a different language and they looked different. And uh, and so in in Barnsleydale, which is mentioned in one of the early Robin of Sher Robin Hood uh, poets poems, there's actually a, there was a village there where apparently they called them the Baileys. There was entire um, people lived in Norman castles in the little villages outside of the castle walls, and they called them Baileys. But they were they looked like gypsies, so people thought they were gypsies. But they were actually the um, remnants of the households of the Crusades that had lived. You know, in Jerusalem, you know, when they when they came back, they brought them back. So it is possible, uh, certainly possible, that there was actually um, a character like Nazir brought back by a Belem, because Belem did exist. There was a real character called the Baron of de Belem, who was known locally as the Devil, because he was uh, apparently possessed, believed he was possessed by a demon, and uh, he was he had a castle up in Northumberland. And um, so all of that, it based all that in those, in, those, in those legends and stories. And I said to him, I said, so we can use that relationship between the cult of the assassins and mm. the Templar. And he wrote it into the show. Oh. Wouldn't happen today. No <laughs> rights. Really so. All of an actor and go, have you got any ideas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't happen. <laughs> but essentially, you had a hand in uh, crafting Nasir's character and, uh, I mean, uh, from what I've read, he was supposed to be killed off in the first episode, but they let you stay on. That is and, true. That yeah. is true. Yeah, I was yeah. supposed to, after I fought with Michael, I was about to just decapitate him at the end when I got the swords in his throat, and they were supposed to come in and fill me full of arrows to save him from me. Mm -hmm. And uh, right on the day that we were shooting, um, I said, oh, we're not doing that now. We're not going to kill him. I said, just just look around as if to go, what's that all about? And And then they had a problem they had to work out what they had to do with me and that's why richard comes to call me kick up kick up comes correct me if i'm wrong it's your arrow that uh michael splits in half right uh yes i believe it is yes because i yes. put the arrow and then yeah. he splits that arrow yeah yeah you kind of uh uh you like there's no particular uh there's no strong ending to nasir's character in that episode like you don't see where he goes or whatever but then like later on uh bands up with the merry men and, well it comes uh, when they're loosing their arrows into the pond the flame arrows to symbolize the the death of the the, the guys that they'd lost in the fight mm -hmm. he joins then he fires an arrow over the top which lands in the in the water he finds them he goes right. to them, i want to be i want to work with you guys i want to be with gotcha, you gotcha, gotcha. yeah 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 but man that's 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 so cool like uh to uh the, the fact that they took your opinion on board and help you develop the character uh and they, they wrote in you know wrote it in <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't happen no no keep control of that stuff you know so <laughs> and you mentioned that you know you uh, that you already had some sort of uh sword fight sword training mm -hmm. and uh, i think i believe you got uh nasir's swords can we i've got nasir's swords with me i actually brought them with me i i kept them as a as a, a souvenir so here they, 
and uh, so cool. And I, they've actually been used. I've actually used them in other uh, uh, shows. They've actually they appeared in an episode of Jules Verne, Secret Adventures of Jules Verne. There was a fight done with nice. them. I've got to get them polished up. They've been sitting in a bag here for three years, and uh, well, I've been in lockdown, so but they are real um, uh, cutlasses. They're actually um, uh, tax excise cutlasses because a lot of the um, custom and excise um, raids during the late 18th century were obviously mm -hmm. doing boats. So you, you need a sword which is short and wieldable in a, in a confined space. And that's why, you know, these uh, cutlasses are, are, are naval, that's in naval cutlasses. Because they're, they're and the, the hilt is quite different from uh, what you normally see. Like it's got these two prongs up on the side. Well, yeah, Teddy, Teddy put these together, Teddy Walsh. Mm -hmm late great Teddy Walsh, who was our yeah. stunt coordinator and fight coordinator. He actually- He was also the stunt coordinator on Star Wars, right? On which one? On Star Wars, was it Star Wars? No, I, he may have worked on Star Wars, but I think Star that Wars, was- No, that was yeah, Teddy, yeah. Uh, you're talking about Bob Anderson. Oh, Bob, that's Bob Anderson, yeah. That's Bob, Bob Anderson, Anderson, yeah, who I have the mm -hmm. sword from that show there. I have a, show, a sword from um, uh, uh, First Night as well there. I have actually got the fighting sword from that. I'll try yeah. to get that if you want to see it. But yes, these have got like a little sidebar, you know, uh, blade grabber, which he mm. uh, put on. Um, these, the hilt set here, obviously, is not the original hilt set because this is a 18th century blade. It's, it's an 1890s blade. And he took off the naval uh, um, modern hilt set and he put this more medieval looking hilt set nice. on and, and put the weight there to, to balance it so that it's actually balanced quite nicely. And these were quite useful for grabbing people's blades and trapping mm. blades and pull the sword in his hand. So, yeah, nice. they throw as well. I can throw. I used. To, I think I did actually throw them in one episode. So, yeah, <laughs> they can rotate, you know, and uh, they bring the blade around and stick into something. So, there you go. Nice. I've also got the sword from the Oin of Clun episode with Jason. I did a fight in the. Oh, in the clone episode where we were in the uh, thing together. That's actually the sword that Jason and I used. The other part of it is over there somewhere. It's got a very, very short hilt. That is actually one of the ugliest swords I've ever used in my life. <laughs> the balance is, is really, really difficult, precisely because of what you're saying. The, the actual grip here, as you can mm. see, it's actually on the wrong way around. But, um, uh, the handle is seems to be on sideways, but uh, there's actually no weight here. This is just aluminum, so it's not really pulling up the blade. Uh, but in in terms of handling it, it was not an easy sword to fight with, and um, it makes a it sort of makes a nice noise, like a dead piece of aluminum. But uh, if you want to see the first night, so I can show you that, and um, you'll see the difference. But I've also got a a oops. Uh, people might recognize this and that's the hilt set this is actually yeah. not from the show this is actually made for me um by a, a company called albion arms who made me a, an albion and uh it's razor sharp actually <laughs> it's very very sharp this would actually do somebody a a, a proper nasty turn yeah we were supposed to all have a sword of wayland all the all the boys but i believe phil ended up uh, being the guardian of them and then i think one got stolen i don't know what he did with the rest but uh, yeah that's <laughs> the 
But as you can see, it's what we call that's what we call a hand and a half. You know, you mm. can get a hand on there and literally yeah, a half to, to the gotcha, yeah. to help wield the sword about. So that's what we call a hand and a half. And Great sword, absolutely lovely. Yeah. Well, I pray for the poor soul whoever decides to break into your house. I hope that ha doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. All sorts of stuff. You know, I do have the knives as well. Well, one of the knives. I've got one of the actual knives that we use somewhere back there. And um, can you still throw them? Oh yeah. 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 Nice. I can throw most things. Throw an axe. Surprised my wife because she challenged me once in the garden. She said, "You know, can you throw that axe?" I said, "Sure." And she went. <laughs> And I went ding into a tree. <laughs> it took a couple of times, I have to say, because you have to, you know, it's about the balance and the timing and mm. the distance. So, um, but yeah, no, did it. She was like, okay. I heard that you guys love to pull pranks on the set of Robin Asher. Would talk to me a bit about that. We did. In fact, it was um, <laughs> uh, uh, Nick Grace and the late Robert Addy were actually two of the, the worst in terms of, well, the best in terms of um, pulling these little uh, things that they did. Uh, and uh, I didn't have a lot to say, so I didn't, I couldn't really verbally, you know, just join in and, and, and add things in <clears throat> that were funny. But, but obviously Nick had got lots of dialogue that he could play with and lots of scenes where he was either in a bath or something and he could, he could make fun, yeah. And he, so he did lots of what we call outtakes. And they often set things up, and even to the point of um, we set we used to set things up that would take weeks to come to fruition, and um, they even wrote things into a screenplay once. We found the stunt guys had to do <laughs> uh, dialogue, to, and uh, Steve then had to do. They gave him this dialogue, and and Teddy says you've got to do this dialogue, and of course stuntmen just they hate doing dialogue. They'll, do, they'll set themselves on fire. They'll dive out of a plane with no parachute, but they, they don't like doing dialogue. And they gave him this dialogue. And so he was wandering around doing this dialogue where he was supposed to be up a tree in court uh, as a Norman up a tree. And um, and he had to say, cuckoo, cuckoo, Egbert, Egbert, and something. And uh, <laughs> they had him tied up a tree during this dialogue. It took weeks to set it up because it was his and it was his birthday of course so um they they did indeed uh on the day of his birthday shoot him hanging from a tree doing this dialogue which was just <laughs> so some of these pranks went set up sometimes you know they were just spur of the moment things ollie um uh tobias did did one where he had people he had his brabants and mercenary skin edgeware edgeware doo-dopey doo-dopey i'm a son of edgeware he made this whole song because our producer paul knight another one god rest his soul came from he lived in edgeware which is north london's famous area in north london he was living in edgeware and um he did this whole he made this whole song up about singing about edgeware just for paul knight so um yeah, no, those the, we did a lot of that. And actually, that was one of the reasons why we got the guest stars that we got. Because mm -hmm. they all heard that it was a great time on the set. So mm. you know, people like Martin Shaw, obviously Lou Collins came and did a, an episode. Um, uh, Ian Ogilvy came and, and did an episode. We had a lot of uh, a lot of guest stars came and joined the show because it was the, it was the talk of the industry that we were having a good time. And if you were on the set, you were part of the part of the gang. So um, it was it was a part of the whole atmosphere. Uh, people enjoying the show. So 
I guess it's that chemistry which even the audience kind of relates to because uh, if you take, you know, I don't know if you are aware, but this show had has had like a very long shelf life here in Sri Lanka, and like normally you wouldn't have that for shows which were. You know, it it ages. Like the show yeah. ages well. I, I mean, yeah. I watched some episodes a little while ago when I was um, before we did the. Uh, um convention that we just did the hooded man convention in great britain barnaby eaton jones there you go mm -hmm. um and um uh i watched one of the episodes again and i was actually surprised i know it sounds weird uh, a lot of actors don't like watching themselves the only reason i like to watch stuff i've done is to learn from it you know to let them go from and i have to say when i watched most of the robin and sherwood stuff there's a couple of occasions where you go oh that, that was a bit painful <laughs> um but um for the most part particularly episodes like swords of wayland really couldn't be bettered really i are you watching go that is great television visually robert young that directed that um absolutely amazing piece of television you know um it detail. still has that very i don't know what the like like you said at the start the show was grounded. It was pretty dark, and uh, it combined pagan mythology in ways that uh, had never been done before. Like Robin Hood used to be a campy kind of story, yeah, in in previous Hollywood interpretations. But then, when this came around, it totally changed the game. And even ever since that, I guess Ridley Scott did something which was kind of okay. But then the I don't know, whatever else has come since then, it never really hit the mark quite like Robin and Sherwood. It brought in the actual pagan concept of, mm. of Forrest being alive and the vehicle for that being uh, Hearn the Hunter, which was way in front of its time. Yeah. Uh, now there's this whole scientific uh, thing, uh, research being done on what they call the mother tree. And there's a concept that in each forest there is a tree, which is the tree which basically its roots and its chemical sends out chemical signals to other trees right. of its um, kin, basically. And that, that the plants and the animals in, in the forest communicate with each other, usually through the roots of the trees, but that the, the forest itself has almost like a collective consciousness, a brain. Like a hive mind. Hive mind, hive mind yes. Oh, wow. And that idea, um, which has been researched, and they've discovered all kinds of things about how trees actually do communicate, protect each other, and send signals about, you know, if a tree's got a disease or they sometimes feed more nutrients to the younger trees so they get they grow stronger and faster and all that kind of stuff. So there's a communication system very much like in the um, concept that uh, uh, they used for... Um, Oh, what's the film about the alien planet where the um, Avatar. Avatar. So yeah. that concept is taken from a real scientific uh, concept based on the, the idea of the mother tree. So um, Kip was way in front of his, his uh, mm. you know, but that the whole idea of being the guardian of the forest and the um, keeper of the leaves, basically the keeper of the trees, um it had been around for centuries it had never been used though mm. in show uh like this and trust me we had a lot of trouble from uh, some people like mary whitehouse who was a big sort of um <laughs> christian um supposed to be a moral you know uh, uh, oh, right, yeah 
And you can imagine there was a certain amount of um, uh, noses out of joints about using basically the then Norman church, the Christian church is the bad guy, is the mafia, and as the pagan god being the hero. So you can imagine there was a lot of discussion about that and certain people that felt like Mary Whitehouse that the um, uh, it was satanic, which he wasn't, you know, um, but they, you know, they thought that he was. That is why, in fact, Swords of Wayland had to go out in the evening after what they call the watershed, when the kids are, you know, later, even yeah. Saturday evening, I think at seven or eight. Um, as, as I think it went for seven till nine or something like that. Um, so that the, it wouldn't, you know, upset the children. Uh, because there's a lot of violence in it, a lot of action, and it had to look at least semi real. You know, we, we insisted yeah. that if it was going to be sword play, there's going to be. Um, violence it had to have you know a, a moral end to the story in the sense that you know yeah violence has a as a result and it's you, you see lots of arrows thudding through uh chain mail into normals uh, mm. but every now and again you've got to see and it, and um showtime at the time didn't want to see any blood they said we don't we can't see any blood it's, it's so that's why you have arrows thudding into normals and not much blood but you do see you do see the results you know uh, of some of the some of the action and that's that's perfectly acceptable it has to be that way yeah yeah exactly and at the same time the the fact that the mantle of robin hood can be passed on from one person to the other because you had two robins uh in the show as well is that something that originated from uh i don't know like uh the, the, from, the that, from the legend yeah yeah, yeah there was there are two main theories about who Robin Hood possibly was, and mm -hmm. um, that uh, is based on what the, the one story, of course, of, of um, Michael's Robin, um, who is the villager that basically becomes a, a rebellious character who's fighting yeah. Romans, and the other is that, of course, he was, you know, the son of a, a nobleman. Uh, who mm -hmm. joined uh, fighting against the Normans for different reasons? So there were there were two tracks of the story. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and um, uh, luckily for us, that there was. And Richard chose for the first one, you know, to be the um, Robin um, of uh, 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 of the pe uh, peasant, you know, revolt yeah. type character, and then. Once Michael decided to leave the show, which was tough, I have to say, to deal with at the time. But I mean, we all wish Michael well, but you know, we knew that it was going to give you know the producers and the writer a problem, a massive problem. And obviously, we'd done two series, so we we didn't want to see the show, you know, die. And we were worried yeah. that it might happen. Uh, but Richard uh, Kip handled it brilliantly in the writing <clears throat> and changed the last episode which he apologized to me for because the last episode the greatest enemy um was supposed to be nazi's episode and he came to me and said look he said i'm gonna have to rewrite this episode it's, it originally was going to be your story because everybody had had their story within the series yeah. and i hadn't and he wanted to do the story um about the the, the assassin cult of the assassins and all that and then Michael decided to leave so he had to rewrite it and he amalgamated that part of the story into the last script great steady and um michael you know <clears throat> left and then we were left with a, an issue well what do we do now and kip came up with bringing in the idea of um, robert of huntingdon and and we carried on and jason came in and did a brilliant job did a brilliant job 
Yeah. Very difficult to follow. Uh, what an act to follow. You have to follow Michael, who's, who's you know, has established himself as this character in the show, uh, surrounded by all that mysticism, uh, mythical mm. um, history. He has essentially he, made his mark as Robin. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, there's lots of debate about whether he should have stayed in the show. Um, I always felt that if he'd had a stay with the show, he perhaps would have had a different career. Um, but he made the decision mm. to go and do a show on Broadway, which I saw. We went and wished him well. And we went, that's Richard, Kit and I, um, and Paul all went to New York to see the show. And sadly, the show, um, The Three Musketeers, did not survive. It was on, yes. I think, for a week. It happens in, on Broadway. If a show is not, not hitting audience, it's, it's gone. And um, the show lasted a week. And I was there when he was offered Dynasty. So, um, you know, he, his career is life. Life throws these, these curveballs at you and, and you yeah. take your chances, you know. Um, and he went off and did that. And Jason came in, did a great job. And um, we've all had such varied careers and uh, from that. But it was what we learned on that show. Everybody will say, everybody will say, you know, Ray will say, you know, what, what he learned about acting on screen, mm. he, he learned from working on Robin Hood. So This is Ray Winston. Yep. 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 Marky, Ray, it's Ray Bondo. Where are you? What are you doing, <laughs> my boy? What are you up to, Sam? Be good. Be lucky. Yes. I actually use that voice as one of the Transformers. He's, he's, I was just going to say that. <laughs> he's actually jet. Behold the glory of Jetfire. I'm a mercenary dude, bro, you know. I'm about to open a space bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, Michael Bay said to me, he said, who is that? Who are you doing? He said, I, I sort of recognize the voice, but I said, it's my mate, Ray. And Ray called me up afterwards. He said, Malky, I'm going to see that film, that Transformers film. He said, you're doing me. I'm a, I'm a Transformer. I'm an SR. You identified I'm it. That bird spy plane. What are you doing? <laughs> He identified your voice, like he identified his accent in your voice. Well, he's he's a Cockney, you know. What I mean, he comes from London. Yeah. So he's got a bit of the old London going on, you know. <laughs> like, the old rhymes, like the Apple and Pears. Yes. So yeah, we threw a bit of that in for the jet though. So. Awesome. Uh, talking about careers and like you know the different parties that they've gone. Yours has had like very interesting uh, trajectory. You uh, ended up doing uh, the the voices for all, pretty much all the Transformers on set, and yep. then ended up as Bumblebee, yep. Jetfire, and uh, later on, I think in Age of Extinction as a Lockdown. As Lockdown, in fact, I, yeah. I worked on all five films on the set with Michael. So there's, if you listen carefully, I, I, you, they they dropped in my voice in various places, um, even. Um, some of the other characters that are in the in the show, if you listen, you'll hear me. I'm, I'm <coughs> turn up as a French one. Um, the French, uh, the French uh, transformer. Uh, uh, if you listen carefully, I know they dropped my voice into various places, <coughs> but I don't mind. I enjoyed working with Michael. Enjoyed working on the the show, and it was great fun to do. You know, it's a decade. We did five films in ten years. You know, like a two year cycle so yeah. um <clears throat> enjoyed doing it. it was it was uh technically um a weird use of all the skills because 
the, the first film I did assisting Bob Anderson first night was the first time I was behind the camera. Um, watching. You were the fight coordinator, right? I was, I was Bob Anderson's assistant. He asked me mm -hmm. to assist him and gotcha. uh, as the sword body, basically, um, sword dummy. And, and I ended up working with Richard Gere and everybody else, Ben Cross, <clears throat> um, rehearsing their fights. And um, uh, it, was, it was a real lesson. I mean, being in front of the camera, you're not always aware of what's going on behind it. And so this was the first time that I actually was behind the, the camera with Bob in a big film i mean this was a 120 million you know dollar film and yeah. they built that castle they built camelot castle that you see there the bat lot at uh, pinewood and wow. uh, uh it was an amazing an amazing set absolutely incredible set because they tore down very sad to see it torn down but they you know they built it, it down. What they i thought that was a real location <laughs> no that castle actually was built at pinewood wow. studio yeah. yeah i know it, it, it incredible and um uh so everything i learned about you know that that behind the camera stuff i learned from bob on on first night and uh, he was such a master uh of uh working with the director working with the actors working with the stunt guys working with the prop guys he he had the whole thing down so i just basically followed him around but it's interesting because I did have actors that were working on on the film came up to me going what are you doing you know you're an actor you should be from camera doing something and i said uh, i'm learning more here than i would ever do in front of the camera because he had to deal with the politics the money he had to deal with the you know the egos he had to deal with everything and i was there and how he dealt with people and how he was able to get stuff done you know um and turn it into an art form you know the, the sword fight um concept as as a drama scene as opposed to just being two people bashing away at each other and in fact when i did when i did king arthur stellan skarsgård wherever you are Stellan, uh, i wish you well he came to me Stellan, and said um uh i've got to do this sword fight he said apparently you're going to be choreographing the sword fight he said i've never done a fight on screen in my life let alone a sword fight how are we going to do this? He said, what's, what's, you know, I said, I stole from Bob Anderson. I said, um, a sword fight is a drama scene where the blades have the dialogue. So you're, it's actually a conversation in steel. Oh, nearly got you. Oh, nearly got you. I'm going to come this way. I'm going to go that way. And each, it's got beats. This, the fight has got beats. So we'll have this beat, that beat, the drama beat, you know, each fight will have a dramatic beat. So don't think of it just as a fight. Think of it as a drama scene. And he went, as if, you know, a bell had gone off in his head. He went, oh, okay. So we cut it into sections. So we get each little section. The section will have a beat. And you think of it as a drama scene. You know, it's the acting scene. It's not just like you bash away at each other. That's not the way it works. And we'll do it that way. And we did, and, and Stellan made a fantastic job of it. But I stole that, and I, I think I told him, I said, I'm stealing from the best I've ever worked with, and that's Bob Anderson. So um, that's that's how it came about. Wow. That's cool. That's that's uh, that's a really nice way of looking at it, rather than, you know, just like a mindless battle between two blades. It's uh, it's a proper dialogue. It's uh, It adds gravity. It's uh, It adds gravity and story. And drama. Uh, you know and, and you've got to put yeah, that exactly. in and 
the 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 interesting part of that was when uh, in the um film in king arthur where stellan his character kills uh, mads mickelson hmm. and mads looks up to the sky and he's got the sword stuck in him and he looks up and and the, the, the eagle flies above him it's a symbolic moment in the in yeah. in the film and you know he died and he kills bats and he dies i went into the tent because i was out watching it close closely on the set by the, the camera and i went into the um uh, video village tent just to see what it looked like on screen and there was one of the girls there that was a um, continuity uh, lady and as i came in she looked at me and she went you evil she said that and she was crying she was crying she said that is the most horrible i said it's got to be horrible that's the whole point you know he's such a great match character was such a great character that you have to really hate the bad guy you have to, and and that was the drama beat that turns that then arthur sees that happen and has his fight with, with yeah. so it was um it was a great drama beat in the film and and it was effective apparently so uh you know that's that's the way i told stella we were going to do it we did it and he was fantastic in the film yeah and it, it shows it definitely shows uh so coming back to voice acting i i just want to come back to this for sure, for a little yeah. bit whenever you you know oscillate between characters how do you, how does that play up here Talking um about that process I've got one of those weird brains um, that. <laughs> well, yeah, I could see. I could see your gears turning behind your eyes ever since you played Nasir back then. Yeah. yeah well, <clears throat> Nasir was was actually pretty easy to play because, as I say, I, I I was steeped in the legend where I grew up with it and the ethos of the forest. Um, I grew up with it, so it was it was uh, it naturally flowed through. And I was very physical in those days, you know, I could ride horses and throw knives and, and use bow and arrow and all that kind of stuff. So it was just a natural, it was a natural step. Um, <clears throat> on the set with Michael, uh, I've got one of those weird brains that I can be looking at the TV screen right now. I can look at my computer screen, looking at you, looking at all the folks out there in, in Sri Lanka. And in my mind's eye, I can put Bumblebee behind the screen. I can actually see it. I can do it now. I could actually see Bumblebee sitting on, on my balcony right now as I'm looking at your screen. I don't know what that is, whether it's an active imagination thing. So um, when we're on the set, obviously, the only robot we actually built was Bumblebee. And there were, he was 17 feet tall, but he weighed two tons. So moving him around the set was a three-act drama. So we, we did go to most of everything else being CGI. So the, it was a, a industrial light and magic, an ILM pole with a light on top so that people had something to look at. But there was no robot there. And, um, but I could, <laughs> I could see them in my mind's eye. If somebody said, no, Optimus is there, Bumblebee is there, whatever's there. I could, I can see that in my mind's eye as I'm looking at the set. And so, um whether it's stanley tucci or john tuturo or whoever is else doing dialogue you know um uh when they when they stood there the, it, this is all new to them so they were like going i don't really know what <laughs> the hell's going on and i would then walk them through the dialogue i'd do the dialogue with them on the set 
and they had something to react to and we had speakers on the set but i was also wired up for sound so i can hear them i can hear me i can hear that you know i'm, I'm i've got yeah. this i've got a handheld microphone so i could um I, I knew what was going on and i could was able to you know manage it that way on the set and uh, uh i could see it so i knew what robot was where because often michael would say okay in fact it happened the very first time the very first scene that we did in the first film was with the wiki house and we had what's called animatics and they're like dra line drawings of the uh, on a screen which you have the scene and they've just put the animatics into the scene and so um i started to laugh michael was showing me this and i was laughing he said can you see that i said yeah yeah he said it's funny you've got giant alien robots hiding in a driveway in a house in somewhere in los angeles he said you can see it i said yeah 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 no, you can see it. it's funny it's funny it's a funny scene right he went great and that's how it went for the next 10 years you know he would wow. go robot 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 this one's here this one's here i'm going to pull this thing and sometimes the crew would come up and go what are we doing and so i would tell them what we were doing and where they were and where the robots were uh, and and all that kind of thing you know could you give us a little demonstration of i don't know maybe a bumblebee impression or something permission to speak sir i wish to stay with the boy and i and that was literally thrown in at the last minute i had no idea they were actually going to do that because the script i had mm -hmm. bumblebee didn't speak so when yeah. michael said to me um just say this right just gave it to me at his office down in santa monica he said just record these lines and i did i had no idea he was going to use them and um he threw them into the film so that's how it came about and obviously then i've done the games and various things since um but yeah i'm physically on the set being everybody i've been optimus prime transform and roll out so i've been everybody on the set that's so cool and even before uh the boy the other voice actors were cast you were playing all these roles on set so yes i guess yeah. it's used to have that kind of imagination right because like working with michael bay is no easy task uh, people say it's mayhem but <laughs> for you i guess it's uh you thrive on it um michael works very fast mm. and he he's he expects you to bring your a game and be ready to rock and all i can tell you is this uh, which probably is the best measure for me of, of, I know people <clears throat> find it a little confusing sometimes because his brain is 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 moving so quick. He wants to he wants to move. He wants to make his time. He wants to make his day. And he's we talked about it once because he said he's got the film burned in his brain. So in his mind, he's read the script and he's already visualized the script in his head. So he knows what he wants it to look like. And um, uh, it's very difficult to, to see that if you can't, you know, kind of see what he's trying to see create on the screen. And I've just got one of those minds where I'm apparently able to do that. And um, when we were doing the last film with uh, uh, Satori, uh, Anthony Hopkins, who I, mm. I went kept calling him Sir Anthony, he kept saying, no, 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 Tony, call me Tony. Um, we were stood there chatting one morning and, and uh, Anthony Hopkins said to me, he said, how many of these have you done? I said, this is my fifth one. He said, um, I've worked with a few directors. And I said, I know you have. He said, I've never seen a director do what Michael can do. I've never seen a director pick up a camera, pick up a bit of sound equipment, pick up lights, pick up this, do it. He said he can do every job on this set. 
He knows about special effects. He knows about stunts. He knows about CGI. He knows about what the camera to use with 3D or, you know, um, IMAX or whatever. He said he his knowledge on the set is is amazing. He's he's um, he really is a genius. And if Anthony Hopkins says that about you, you know, you've got to take it seriously. And, and sure enough, you know, Michael is a creative genius. Um, and it and it I understand why sometimes it's a bit frustrating and a bit confusing because he's um he wants to move, he wants to keep the film moving all the time. And um uh he's his own first assistant, he doesn't need a first assistant on the set because he's telling everybody what he wants to happen. Uh, and if you can keep up with that, great. Um, and that's why sometimes it seems like it's a bit a bit confusing mayhem but actually it's not there is a method to his to his uh madness and uh and he gets it in the camp you know um i know it can be uh, difficult to keep up sometimes but I, I for some reason i just w was able to and um understood what he was trying to achieve and so I, I was usually there in the right place at the right time I went back and watched uh, all the behind the scenes featurettes from all five movies. Like this is what, something I did uh, while having lunch over like a two week period. <laughs> and uh, man, I mean, it, it's honestly a delight seeing this guy uh, doing what he does because like, like you said, he, uh, he always wants to keep uh, people moving. Like he, whoever captured behind the scenes captured that too. Well, he's he's been doing it. He wanted to obviously yeah. he's it's in his blood, and um, yeah. he's and I don't mean this to sound as an insult. I mean it to sound as a compliment. He's unique. <laughs> you know, if he gets a new camera, he wants to know how it works. He wants to know he's fiddling with it and playing with it, and you know, and and what's the best way to get the best out of the camera. Yeah. And his mother tells a great story about him blowing the house up. He said when he. <laughs> <laughs> he was a boy because he was into you know doing the special effects and stuff like that she said he came home one day and all the windows in the house <laughs> blown out he'd blown something up in the house where doing one of his making one of his little films somewhere and he set fire to something and, and they came all the windows were blown out of the house the blast had blown the glass out and play and um so yeah he's he's it's been in his in his blood and in his psyche mm. since he was a kid and it's you know he lives for it and um yeah i i can respect that and i also understand though though however um how that can be um uh confusing more than one person i won't name names has come up to me on the set and gone help help i don't know i don't understand what is going on um and uh, uh in fact one uh, uh actress i want to get in tales out of school she came to me and said you know she said what the hell how am i what am i going to do i said i'll be there on the set when we're ready to sh i'll give you the first line just look at me give me a nod whatever you need and i'll you know this oh, is what yeah. this is here this is there and um she, it happened quite a lot that people went what the hell is going on and i would jump into the the hole and go well uh, Okay, I'm going to give you the line, and, and we'll we'll work. You know, whatever you want to do. So, yeah, <laughs> super cool. <laughs> we got it in the can, and the films were very successful. So, yeah, you know, you know it's. Um, I think my it was entertainment at the end of the day. You know, you sit your brain off, go enjoy something for like a solid two, two and a half hours, and walk away feeling. I don't know. For me, at least, 
I was it's a ride. It. It's like going to Universal and doing the ride. You mm. sit there and do the ride and you switch off and you enjoy it. You know what I mean? So exactly. the whole thing is that you sit in the cinema and you just forget about life for the two and a half hours that you're sitting there and paying the electricity bill and, and, and taxes and all that kind of stuff. And you sit there and hopefully you go on this ride with these people in this in this film. You know, yeah. it's, um, it's an entertainment. It's supposed to be an entertainment. Although there's been lots of questions and just recently it's come up again. I was asked about whether I thought it was possible that there were somewhere out in the universe a mm -hmm. um, a race of mechanical, sentient mechanical um, aliens. And I said, well, why not? Why not? Mm -hmm. I mean, at some point in the proceedings, our consciousness will one day probably be, be transferred from body to body. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll find a way to move this consciousness, consciousness into another, yeah. whether it's AI or, or a simulated <sighs> of our personalities into some kind of um you know whether they grow the body you know in a lab or whether it's you know they'll find a way to do that and you'll load it into you know basically a computer they'll find a way to do that and i said so it's possible that out there somewhere in the universe there is a race of semi-mechanical um aliens you know out there maybe they've even visited us we don't natural progression that's where it's gonna lead i guess you know, no. Well, we have to do something because if we do want to go out in the universe at the moment, our mm -hmm. current science, which I, which I have my own belief about, but um, human beings are not well designed to spend a lot of time in space. So they're yeah. going to have to find a way of m making the environment within a, a ship that can, you know, uh, go through the dimensional um, barriers. Because obviously, just trying to do the distances is not going to work. There must be another way that you can get from A to B throughout the yeah. universe without doing the actual distances. There's lots of suggestions about portals and wormholes and, and black holes and finding a way to actually transdimensional travel. So you pop in one part of the universe and come out somewhere else. Um, and you don't have to travel that distance. I mean, that is being discussed seriously, scientifically. How are we going to make this work? because the distances are just so too big. Too so big, yeah. um, we have to find another way to do it. And it's being discussed, you know, scientifically as a theory. Well, you know, that would be one way, would be to pop in and out of the, these dimensional portals mm -hmm. if um, we can find them. And our, and our bodies would have to be able to withstand uh, that type of travel. And at the moment, we, we're pretty, you know, vulnerable in space, so. Fragile, uh, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll evolve to be able to do it. Looking forward to that. <laughs> Mark, this has been a really, really interesting session. Uh, before we wrap up, though, uh, you are, you're also an author. Talk to me uh, very briefly about you know the work that you've done on DC Comics, uh, your autobiography. Just uh, quickly tell yeah. me a bit about that. Yeah. Um, I, uh, again, this all started at school. I was always writing at school. Um, in school, as well as doing musical stuff, I was I was you know writing stories in, at school. I loved it. You, the best present I could be given was a blank you know book, and I could just sit and write my stories, adventures, and stuff like that. So um, it, it's, it goes all the way back to my childhood, and obviously with the tarot, um, uh, I, I was getting asked questions at conventions about the symbolism of Robin of Sherwood, which I I understood because I grew up with it. And it was actually um, Cheska Potter that suggested we did a, a tarot deck and all of these archetypes, Jungian archetypes, were in history put into it. So that was the first one I wrote was the Greenwood Tarot, which was is still a cult success and cult deck to this day. And what we did 
um, the system that we use is called the wheel of the year system because it's the natural system, you know, the rhythm of the cycle uh, of nature in, in Northern Europe, but um, and in the UK, that's why Stonehenge is round because it's basically a wheel, um, as opposed to Kabbalah, which Kabbalah is, seems to be much more of a construct and difficult for me to difficult to understand. So we based Greenwood Tarot on, on the wheel of the year system with the animals and the symbolism of the animals and the, and the characters within it. Um, and um, we did that for Wildwood as well. John Matthews and I, then we did, we did the Wildwood Tarot, which was originally, Greenwood Tarot was going to be called Wildwood Tarot, but uh, the publishing company thought it was too sexy. So um, uh, they ended up being called, the, the, the Greenwood ended up being the Wildwood, and then we did the Wildwood Tarot. And then we wrote Wild Magic, which is a little workbook that goes with it. Then at the moment, right now, we're doing one called the Sherwood Oracle, which is, again, it's an oracular system based on uh, the myths, legends, and archetypes, obviously, in the Sherwood legend. So um, we're working on that right now. It'll be out next year uh, through Sterling Publishing in New York. Um, the artist is is brilliant. John and I are working together again, and, and Yvonne Gilbert is the artist, and the art the art is just stunning. So that'll be out next year. Yeah, I've written for DC Comics. I wrote The Pilgrim for a company called Comic Mix. We, uh, Mike Grill and I are going to republish the rest of that because it got... Um, uh it got frozen in time basically um and again it's one of those ideas that has found its time uh, there's a show called the skinwalker ranch curse of skinwalker mm. ranch here which is um, a show about this ranch where a lot of strange things happen yeah um and uh this character the, the pilgrim is what would be described in the show as a hitchhiker he it, it finds it's an entity that gloms onto people's energies mm. And in this case, it gloms onto this um, uh, Tom Dillon's uh, energy. And so it's about that. It's about otherworldly things, but in a scientific, put, put in a scientific framework. Because a lot of research has gone into what possibly, how, this, how our consciousness works and how consciousness outside of the body works. So there's a lot of science now being done about understanding um, how it works on the subatomic particle level. Yeah. Uh, even in what they call superstring theory, there's a concept in the 12-dimensional universe. So um, it's based on that and zero-point uh, energy field and, and, and how to use that. So um, Pilgrim was based on that. Yeah, and I just I wrote Hold Fast after going to Africa to do Black Sails. It was such a an amazing, amazing experience. Um, but I had a lot of sitting about to do down there. So I started writing this, my my um, memories of various things. And it was John Matthews that again said to me, um, maybe we should record this as a series of interviews, which we did about my um, life and about you know, my experiences in the West End. And so we turned it into a biography. Uh, so whole fast, there's a lot of stuff in whole fast. It's got a lot of, you know, it's, it's, as I said at the beginning of the book, names have been names and dates have been changed to protect the guilty. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in there that you know. I went, oh, we got to be careful with some of this stuff because I've had this other career, you know, yeah. a, a side of this as being an investigator and investigator, uh, private investigator in California, and um, uh, and I've trod down some very dark um, alleyways. Uh, uh, but yeah. 
hopefully have done done some good for some people somewhere so i worked a lot with the indian tribes here which i enjoyed tremendously i have to say i got on a lot well with the, with the american uh, uh, indigenous tribes in their casinos um which is this book available sorry is this book available on amazon yeah yeah just just type okay. online the whole fast it's it's you the, i think it's what they call print on demand so you just order gotcha. it, print it and send it to you so link's gonna be in the description below folks so if you're interested go check it out i talk a lot about robin issue and i talk a lot about black sales i talk a lot about first night i talk a lot about evita you know basically the progression of my you know stories and sort brilliant. of back to yeah. brilliant mark <clears throat> thanks so much for uh doing this this has been a real delight thank and, you uh, um, my my honestly my sincere thanks and love to everybody in sri lanka that watches the show I mean, we're all aware of the fact that it's it's there. I talked to the boys about it. We've all been going, Sri Lanka, 30-odd years later. You know, <laughs> who would have thought it? You know, so trust me, the cast is aware that you guys are into the digging the show all this time later. So trust me, we are aware of it, and we're very grateful for your support. Thank you for making our childhood, sir. And uh, hopefully, you know, uh, let's try to get a full cast reunion maybe sometime. A what, Terry? A full cast reunion like this? Oh no, I'd love to do that. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, we, if we can work out how to do it, um, if you want to try and do it online as a as a group Zoom type call, I'm sure yep. we can make people available for it. We'll have let's, to see what we can let's do. make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> Getting everybody in the same place at the same time is difficult now because we're all in far flung corners of the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you did it as a Zoom, though, it wouldn't be so difficult. But to get everybody in the same place is now. Because uh, Clyde Quite obviously is down the road, but you know, raising could be in Spain, it could be anywhere where he's working in Italy or Sicily, and Jason's in the Bahamas or in Scotland or whatever. So trying to get everybody together physically is not is is uh, tough. But trust me, I don't. I, I'm not saying this because it, it, it's um, not true. I'm saying it because uh, because it's you know it. We're all still friends yeah. after all this time. Judy, Nick, everybody we're pals and and we have a bond of that experience which you rarely get in a show you know at the end of a show people disappear and here we are all this time later and it's like nothing changed when you see us together you'll see us all talking exactly the same way as we did when we were making the show nothing's changed it's it's fantastic so i, I don't know man I'm, I'm i'm really looking forward to uh getting everybody on board uh, probably on a Zoom call and uh, doing that reunion because over here in Sri Lanka, this show meant a lot and it still does mean a lot to so Thank many you. people. Thank you. So has your work, uh, your voice work, your work on Black Cells. It's been amazing. And uh, sir, thank you so much for uh, doing this. To the go good folks over at uh, TSML, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for uh, joining. Thank uh, you. Keep an eye out for Junkyard Theory. Uh, we're probably going to have a little storytelling workshop like we teased a uh, few weeks back uh, so uh, within the next two weeks we're pro probably going to have this uh mark there's been a there's, there have been uh, multiple requests in the comments to do bumblebee's voice which you've done but uh let's end it with probably one line from bumblebee one line from bumblebee yep uh are you are you bowan <laughs> i wish to stay with the sri lankan fans yes i do Permission to, speak, permission to speak, sir. Permission to speak, sir. Yes. <laughs>
<laughs> Mark, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Until next for time, guys. Take care, everybody. Bye bye.